The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, an agent of the Imperium, notes on the hard-hitting Carrera-verse, and tales of the war that might have been had the Cold War turned hot and very, very weird. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All that right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's an honor to have you along. First, a late breaking news bulletin. This just in, I am not Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Longtime listeners to the podcast might recognize my voice, though not the face that goes with it. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David Afshirod. I've guest hosted the podcast a few times back when it was audio only, and I'm excited to be here now in living Technicolor with you. I'm also pleased to say that you'll be hearing and or seeing me more often in the future as I'll be sitting in for Tony Daniel about once a month. For my first podcast back in the saddle and on video, I talked with edit the editor and some of the contributors to the new anthology, Weird World War III, which is out now in trade paperback and ebook. This new collection of stories imagines what might have happened if the Cold War had turned hot and gotten very, very weird. It was a pleasure talking with editor Sean Patrick Hazlitt and contributors Erica L. Satifka, T.C. McCarthy, and John Langan, and I think you'll really be interested to hear what they had to say. But first, the news. The post-apocalypse October ebook sale continues until the stroke of midnight on Halloween saved big on John Ringo ebooks. Save $2 per ebook in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising original series. That is the books Under a Graveyard Sky, To Sail a Darkling Sea, Islands of Rage and Hope, and Strands of Sorrow. Plus save a dollar off on other John Ringo ebooks. And this sale applies across the World Wide Web wherever you buy your ebooks. Fiction and nonfiction on Bain.com. This month, we have a new short story set in the Traveler universe by legendary game designer Mark Miller. Miller's new novel, Agent of the Imperium, is out in trade paperback next month, and he wrote this short story as a tie-in. As an agent of the Imperium, Agent Shigili's life is governed by the rules all agents are honor-bound to follow. But when he finds himself once again reactivated for duty, it is in a situation for which no rules exist. But Agent Shigili of the quarantine has long ago learned an important lesson. Any action is better than inaction. And he will do whatever it takes to restore peace and honor to the Imperium. The story is called The Red Ship and it is on Bain.com right now. Go check it out. For nonfiction this month, we conclude our three-part essay, Notes on the Carrera-verse, a concordance, more or less, by Carrera series creator Tom Crapman. In this series of essays, Crapman outlines the history and the world building of the hard-hitting Patricio Carrera series. You can read part three, as well as the earlier two installments right now on Bain.com. Now here's our roundtable interview discussing Weird World War III, an all-new anthology of science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories edited by Sean Patrick Hazlitt. 
It's out now in trade paperback and ebook editions. Hey everybody, I'm here with the editor and some of the contributors to Weird World War III, an all new anthology of tales of the war that might have been had the, uh, the Cold War between the Soviets and the West heated up. And uh, looking at those, uh, that prospect through a science fiction, fantasy, and sometimes even a horror lens. Let's go ahead and meet uh, the editors and, uh, or excuse me, the editor and the participants now. Uh, first up, let me see. The editor, Mr. Sean Patrick Hazlitt. He's an army veteran, speculative fiction writer and editor, and finance executive in the San Francisco Bay Area. He holds an AB in history and a BS in electrical engineering from Stanford University and a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he won the 2006 Policy Analysis Exercise Award for his work on policy solutions to Iran's nuclear weapons program under the guidance of future Secretary of Defense Ashton B. Carter. He also holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School, where he graduated with second year honors as a cavalry officer serving in the elite 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. He trained various Army and Marine Corps units for war in Iraq and Afghanistan. While at the Army's National Training Center, he became an expert in Soviet doctrine and tactics, something that maybe came in handy when putting this together. We'll see. Uh, he has also published a Harvard Business School case study on the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment and how it exemplified a learning organization. He is a 2017 winner of the Writers of the Future contest. Over 40 of his short stories have appeared in publications such as uh, The Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction. I'll give myself credit for that one. I was the editor yeah, there. Thank you. Good working with you. Uh, Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Terraform, Galaxy's Edge, Writers of the Future, Grimdark Magazine, Vesterian, and Abyss and Apex, among others. He is an active member of the Horror Writers Association and Codex Writers Group. And this is his first anthology that he's put together. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for putting the book together, first off, and of course, coming on the podcast to talk with us today. Yeah, my pleasure, David. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, now on to the contributors to the book. Uh, first up, John Langan is the author of two novels and three collections of stories. For his novel, The Fisherman, he was awarded the Bram Stoker and This Is Horror Awards. With Paul Tremblay, he co-edited Creatures, 30 Years of Monsters. He is one of the founders of the Shirley Jackson Awards for whose first three years he served as a juror. Currently, he reviews horror and dark fantasy for Locust Magazine. He lives in New York's Hudson, excuse me, he lives in New York's Hudson Valley with his wife, younger son, and he isn't sure how many animals anymore. His next collection of stories, Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies, is forthcoming from Word Horde in 2020. Or maybe is it out already, John? It, it just came out ah. uh, last month. Yeah. Okay, well, congratulations on the, uh, the book birthday. Thanks very much, and thanks for having me today. Ab absolutely. T.C. McCarthy uh, is an award-winning and critically acclaimed Southern author whose short fiction has appeared in Per Contra, the International Journal of the Arts, Literature and Ideas, Story Quarterly, and Nature. Bain Books released his latest novel, Tiger Burning, in July 2019. Uh, and they've all, we've also got one uh, forthcoming, Tiger Bright. Uh, his earlier debut military science fiction trilogy, those are Germline, Exegene, and Chimera, 
was released in 2012, and uh, that's available worldwide. In addition to being an author, TC is a PhD scientist, a Fulbright Fellow, and a Howard Hughes Biomedical Research Scholar. TC, thanks for uh, coming on talking about Weird World War III. I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you. And uh, last but not least, as I always like to say, Erica L. Satifka's short fiction has appeared in Innerzone, Clark's World, and Daily Science Fiction. She is the author of the British Fantasy Award-winning Stay Crazy from Apex Publications and the Rural rural Juror, you guys ever watched 30 Rock, the Rural <laughs> Cyberpunk novella Busted Synapses from Broken Eye Books. If you want to read more of her stories, catch them all at her website, ericasatifka.com. Erica, it is uh, great to have you on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, all right, so I wanted to talk, Sean, probably to you first, uh, since you put this all together and this is your uh, brainchild, if you will. Um, but first, before we talk about the specifics of the book, this book is dedicated to two men that were very important to you. And um, feel free to talk about both if you like. I think one, uh, probably more personal just to you, uh, whereas the second, I'm talking about uh, Mike Resnick, um, is somebody kind of, uh, I think, that touched a lot of people's lives uh, and writers, uh, both fans and readers as well, but um, with... Uh, with his work as an editor uh, and um, with writers of the future and such. And uh, so I just wanted to, you know, how had Resnick sort of influenced you and maybe mentored you and, and, and that kind of uh, aspect in putting together this first anthology of yours? Yeah, so, so I'll address, address both. So the, the first person, and I'll, I'll hand, put, um, talk about Mike at the you know, tail end. So the, the first person that the anthology was dedicated to was Captain Ralph J. Harden, Harding. Um, he served with me very briefly in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Um, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment is, um, you know, an elite cavalry regiment that's been around, uh, you know, since the turn of the last century. Um, they, you know, David Drake also served in the 11th, uh, in the 11th Cavalry in Vietnam. Um, and my friend uh, Jay Harding did. Um, he, you know, served overseas. He took charge of uh, the sister company that uh, I served with when I was at the National Training Center. Um, and he also, you know, graduated in my high school class. Um, his daughter was born in the same hospital ward about a day apart from mine. So, you know, this is, this is dedicated to his memory. He was the best of us. Um, and typically those are the people who, um, you know, die in die in combat he was um you know leading by example inspecting um you know uh, you know a truck for for you know improvised explosive devices and you know he's doing it personally as all good leaders do um leadership by example and and um you know this is dedicated to him um it's also dedicated to to mike resnick and um, mike resnick is is well known for taking young authors and editors under his wing um, this anthology would not have been possible without his advice and mentorship. Um, when I asked him first to participate in it, he said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Do you have another one? Just in case it gets rejected. And, you know, I originally had asked him to, you know, solicit him for another um, anthology with Bain that Bain you know, subsequently did not pick up. And this was the second idea that, um, you know, that, you know, that I was inspired by. So, um, you know, as, as you all know, he passed earlier this year. 
And, you know, and one of his last stories is in this anthology. So um, I, I want to make it, you know, make it clear that I, I, I acknowledge, you know, we, we, you know, I think Isaac Newton once said that, you know, if I've seen far, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, Mike Resnick was that kind of person. So it wouldn't have been possible without him. Yeah, and so um, you mentioned that there was one anthology you had an idea for that didn't get picked up, but this one did, yep. and we're glad to have it. And um, this is, as I said in the little intro, sort of stories of the war that might have been uh, had the Cold War heated up or gone different directions. And uh, I just wondered if you could talk about both where the idea for that came from and how you mm -hmm. approached it with the authors and sort of your central conceit of uh, what that might look like and I mean, maybe how much free reign you gave people and uh, just all that as you were putting this together uh, in both in your head before you pitched it. And then of course, as you're assembling it. Yeah, the central, the central conceit of this anthology is uh, think um, Tom Clancy meets H.P. Lovecraft. And that's, you know, at a very high level what I was trying to, to get at. Um, but it's also very specific. So um, you know, I grew up in the 80s during the Cold War, um, you know, and I served in the military right about when it ended and, and, and after when the Soviet Union was still, you know, their doctrine and tactics were still um, the most competent peer competitor that we faced at the time. So um, when I was at the National Training Center, I learned their doctrine and tactics in, intimately and used that to fight against other uh, U.S. military units before they went overseas to war. So I, I wanted to have an anthology that looked at kind of the alternative history of what that war would have looked like, either be it conventional or nuclear. Um, additionally, I wanted to have a speculative element in induced in that. In some stories, it's subtle. In some stories, it's, you know, at the center of the, um, you know, at the center of the story. And then, and at the same time, I wanted to, um, you know, bring in authors that Bain was very familiar with, like TC, um, um, David Drake, Brad Torgerson, that that folks um, you know know and love, and have that strong military science fiction fantasy angle. But I also wanted to introduce Bain to some new authors on the weird side, who I think very highly love, uh, highly of. You know, two of whom are on this on this call. So you know, if you ever want to read a phenomenal novel, uh, read The Fisherman, um, which is the Brand Stoker Award-winning author by John Langan. And then, you know, and then new voice, your new, newer voices, you know, new voices relative here, like Erica Satifka, who's also on this call, who write tremendously, like, extremely good, um, weird fiction. And I think, you know, having collaborating with both of them and just adding, you know, some of that military, you know, background for, you know, some, some more, you know, some verisimilitude in some of the stories, I think really helped. Um, so that's, that's kind of the background of what I was trying to achieve. Yeah, when I was looking through the uh, table of contents at everybody who you got on here, I was kind of a little jealous. I was, uh, you know, I recognize so many names. And as you said, and this kind of goes along with uh, just to honor him a little bit more, Mike Resnick's sort of viewpoint of you mix the uh, the old timers and then the up and comers and, uh, you know, maybe introduce some of the, the greats of the genre to people who aren't familiar with them, but they are familiar with what's going on now and vice versa. And I think you did a great job of getting that mix and just so many great authors. And again, uh, some of whom are here today. Um, uh, let me see, I wanted to talk about, cause of course at the center of a lot of these stories is a lot of the weird 
things either inspired by or literally in some cases um, that the Soviets and the US and the West did things like Project Blue Book and remote viewing and all this. And uh, authors, if you guys want to chime in, um, how much research in, I mean, you're obviously very familiar with Soviet tactics, but how much of that sort of off the beaten path, strange, uh, secret, almost secret history kind of thing did you look into for these? And, and authors, if you want to talk about maybe some of those elements you might have drawn on that were that are sound like science fiction or fantasy, but they're actually real world things that we were looking into. So I'll start really quick, or hopefully really quick. Um, there was a story that um, in the in the anthology that Sarah Hoyt wrote that made heavy use of remote viewing. Um, remote viewing is also tangentially mentioned in David Drake's um, story. So I'm just like, you know, I, I've heard about this before. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to learn more about it. And it turns out if you go to the CIA's website, they have declassified documents there. So they talk about um, projects like uh, Project Gondola Wish, um, which was a survey that the U.S. military did on all of um, the Russian, you know, Soviet paranormal programs stretching all the way back to, you know, the 1920s, et cetera. And what that did in the late 70s is kind of freaked out the U.S. defense establishment. So they started doing a lot of um, started doing a lot of work on um, you know sussing out some of these things and seeing if there was any there there. So they you know started projects like uh, Project Center Lane, uh, Sunstreak. Um, it kind of ended with with Stargate. Um, but they looked at something called remote viewing. Um, to start that, they contracted with SRI, which is the Stanford Research Institute out here in Palo Alto, and they. Um, you know, brought in folks who had, you know, some of these abilities and actually operationalized some of the, you know, techniques, tactics, and procedures. Um, and depending on who you talk to, talk to um, former members of the remote viewing program, which was based out of uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, um, there was some, some successes and then there were some, you know, things didn't, 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 you know, didn't uh, quite pan out. But uh, uh, TC's compatriots, uh, you know, when, when, when the leaks started happening in 1995, they abruptly canceled the program and then the CIA took over. And then the CIA kind of just said, oh, none of this worked categorically, um, you know, not, not effective, didn't, you know, it didn't work. But um, it's just inter fascinating to, to read some of these um, operational reports. And they're just freely available to anybody. You just go to the, the website and you can catalog the, the history there. And then, of course, you know, Project Blue Book. Um, um, there's been recent news in the New York Times about, um, I think they call them IAPs now, um, you know, advanced, uh, you know, um, I don't know what, the, what, it, what it stands for, but it's basically what UFOs were. You've seen the USS Nimitz incident in 2003. So there's a lot of stuff out there that, you know, whether or not you believe it, um, it's, there have been um, programs that have been declassified that, that looked into the, these phenomena. Yeah, and TC, maybe, I don't know if you want to talk about it. It seemed to me that your story, Zip Ghost, maybe hit on that kind of aspect a little bit more um, of the contributors here, um, of that sort of, it's, it's not really a cult. You, you have a science fiction kind of backing to it, but that sort of more out there secret program behind things. Um, did you, when you were writing that story, were you thinking of any of these? Is this based on something um, that 
was I don't want to say it was real, but that was <laughs> in jail right now. It's definitely not. I mean, I can't speak for TC, but it's definitely. What was your jumping off point? I guess well, was this you know, a total flight of fantasy, or was there a um, a jumping off point? Based, you know, it's another author in the anthology. And tell me if my sounds too loud. I don't know. I I can't get a good feel for it. Um, another author in the anthology. I think it was him, uh, Nick Mamatas. A uh, long time ago, when I first started to try and kind of break into the business, mentioned that when you're when you're thinking of a short story, you know, don't go with the first idea that pops into your head because chances are, you know, hundred other people are going to come up with that idea. And I really took the the word weird in the title to heart, <laughs> so um, I probably went with my like fiftieth idea, and that was this concept of all right, well, in science fiction, the multiverse is kind of popular and it has been for a while. Um, what if we base it in a, in a kind of scene or a setting, my story, where um, there is a multiverse. We know how to move between, or in some cases stop from moving between, because in my story, it actually, it happens whether you want it to or not, unless you, you do certain things. Um, what if we have a cold war where instead of territories on earth, the territory is, is the multiverse and the Russians and, and Americans are going at it like we did back in the, the 60s and 70s with proxy wars and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's kind of where I, where I went with my story. It's, it takes place in Vietnam and um, in a proxy war. Uh, but in this case, you know, American uh, special forces are going at it against some Russian special forces. And of course, it's very bizarre. I love saying this. I've probably said it on every interview that I've, that I've been in recently. But the only way um, to, to uh, again, I went weird. The only way to prevent um, uh, the kind of spontaneous movement of, of your consciousness from one particular um, you know, Earth to another Earth in another, in another universe is uh, to A, uh, have syphilis, and B, take lots of peyote. So um, uh, you definitely, with those kind of components, you get, you get a real kind of um, uh, setting for something very strange and odd, but I think at the same time that works. Uh, so, and, and there's a little bit of the absurd in it, like there is with any bureaucracy, right? I've, the, I used to work at the CIA. I've, I've worked at DOE laboratories. They are all very similar in terms of their absurd rules, regulations, et cetera. So, you get a little bit of a hint of that in certain parts of the story. And, and um, again, hopefully that worked. I do want to say one thing, um, you know, going back to what Sean said, uh, mentioning UAPs and all, all the recent interest with the Nimitz sightings and everything. I dig UFOs and that whole subject. And um, I don't know if I'm ready to say on a podcast or whatever this is, I don't know what we call it. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if I'm ready to say, you know, what my belief is when it comes to that topic. But it's very interesting that when you look at remote viewing, the, um, and my story didn't have anything remote viewing related in it, but you, um, you really start to see kind of the incestuous relationship with, with certain personalities that keep popping up all the time. I, think, I believe Hal Pudoff, who is now at To The Stars Academy, had a relationship with, um, with the agency and with SRI, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so his name in the, in the kind of lore comes up over and over again. He's a pretty interesting guy. And uh, one last thing I'll say is John Langan, if he is um, in the Hudson Valley, at some point we've got to ask him if he was around during any of the UFO waves where, uh, where um, you know, there were multiple, multiple sightings over I think an entire year. Uh, very famous ones, including some landings. And I'm really curious to know if he saw any of that. But 
This is about weird World War III, so if there's time. <laughs> uh, I could tell you, but I would have to kill you. I, I mean, hey, fair enough. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I'm sorry. It's not me. To be fair, there's also a lot of false pauses in that stuff. So one of my one of my friends um, was a stealth bomber pilot, and they used to do test runs before they kind of went overseas to to do you know bombing runs over Iraq and uh, every and they would do it over you know midwestern cities. They would do like you know practice and uh, every time he did that, they were they were, they reported him as a well. I don't know if they were reporting him as a UFO sighting, but I imagine that, you know, just seeing the lights without seeing the actual um, black silhouette of the bomber would be, so there are other, like lots of false positives too, and you have to be um, cognizant of that. And there was just, just because of the lore, right? In the Mid-Hudson Valley, there was actually a group of guys um, who flew light aircraft at night. Um, and it was just a thing. It was just something they, and I actually did see them at one point when I was in the eighth grade, I think, at like a sort of a graduation party. Um, and we were all just like, oh, but uh, we never thought, it's odd, I never thought they were UFOs. Like, I just thought, oh, someone's flying a plane. There was, I, I don't know why I thought that. You know, I, I, I don't think of myself as particularly perceptive in that way. But on the other hand, those may actually have been UFOs that I just confused with right. light aircraft. So yeah. who knows? Um, I Just back on TC story, just briefly, I liked sort of the, you, you talked about the multiverse and it's sort of the reverse. I think we always think of like the conceit would normally be somebody who can jump to different realities. And this is that sort of, I think probably most people have probably heard of the Mandela effect, you know, where, which is this idea, you know, people swear they remember watching Nelson Mandela's funeral uh, at a time before he had passed away, you know, in the eighties or whatever it is. Um, or, you know, remembering a movie that doesn't exist. And so the, there's a theory that you slipped out of another reality where that movie did. And so in your story, you've got basically everybody's doing that all the time, uh, except and doesn't realize it, except for these characters. And I thought that was an interesting sort of um, flip on that idea. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I didn't actually even think of the Mandela effect, but you're, that's exactly right. That's a great analogy to use. I'm going to steal that going forward, if you don't mind. Absolutely. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, maybe Erica's story, um, which is called Where You Lead, I Will Follow, an oral history of the Denver incident. Um, and this is sort of, uh, it's is an oral history. So we get these different points of view. And I want to ask about that maybe uh, as well, where that idea came from um, uh, to do that. But just to set it up a little bit, it's uh, a, talking about a game called Follow the Leader, which is sort of a Pokemon Go, I guess you would say style. Um, oh, what's it called? Augmented reality kind of game that uh, takes off like wildfire. And uh, this story I loved, and it, I loved I liked all the stories, but uh, because it reminded me of an episode of Black Mirror in a lot of ways, um, something that you would see on there, which I love that show. I know it's a little bleak for some people, <laughs> um, but if you want to just uh, kind of set up how the game works and uh, in, within the story, and then talk about that aspect of the oral history uh, and approaching it that way, be interesting. Sure. Well 
it's you know obviously based on um, Pokemon Go, which I was playing a lot of at the time. I didn't get into it, and everybody else did. I was like about two years late, so I was you know had it was kind of playing it a lot. So it's like, well, I, I kind of want to write a story about this, you know, soon. And um, so in the story, um, so in Pokemon Go, you don't really you don't really interact with say like the environment so much, but in the um, in Follow the Leader, the game and the story, uh, things that you do in real life, like say moving your shoes from like one place in the house to the other or eating a certain thing or whatever, um, it's tracked. The app can track it, they can see what you're doing, they can, uh, and then they give you instructions. So you get points for when you, you know, move a piece of paper from one pile to the other or you get, get points when you like just do random things. And um, the idea is that these little tiny small um, change that people make uh, includes people who work at a um, military installation. Um, so uh, through like millions or hundreds and millions of little tiny movements, um, they managed to, uh, the United States manages to bomb itself through a series of very tiny movements. So I kind of had this idea of this game that has this kind of malevolence behind it. And of course, because it was a, um, a Cold War story and, you know, it does take place in the modern era because there are cell phones, but it's still like, uh, it's actually based on the whole Russia gate thing. Um, uh, it's, uh, so people obviously blame the Russians, blame other countries, but, you know, there's no real, you know, uh, country that would be so able to do this sort of thing that the implication is left that it's, um, some sort of AI or, you know, some sort of malevolent force beyond what, you know, we can imagine. And, very um, Lovecraftian. I, the is very Lovecraftian, which is it, why it It's meant to be like, kind of meant to be like this whole, you know, because you would have to almost be like a god to be able to know that moving a post-it note from one computer to the other would cause, you know, the bomb to go off. Um, and so I had the idea to write it as an oral history because I figured, because I, I tried writing it as just a straight story and it wasn't working because I needed to kind of show all of the effects of the bomb. Because the story takes place after the bomb has gone off, after everything is destroyed, war is imminent, uh, you know, chaos is is erupting and um, there was no way to really show that other than to show like the m people from all over the world who created the game, who were, um, you know, who caused the bomb to go off, who were, be who were affected by the fallout. So there's, you know, I tried to come up with, uh, there's 10 different characters. And so they have, you know, pretty much 10 different views of how like, how awful this would be. And also, you know, as the story goes on showing you like, you know, because like one of the characters, like the programmer who created the game, you realize that um, he never actually spoke to a human being, which you know tells you like that it's not quite human beings doing it. Yeah, I liked um, it, what you did with the uh, with the oral history, and in addition to just getting these different points of view, was sort of like uh, the different takes on. I mean, the event is obviously bad, but you know, early on, you have somebody say. Um, you know, maybe have, have a more positive view of this augmented reality mm -hmm. game. And then as it kind of goes, maybe things get a little bit darker. And, um, and I like that sort of creeping dread sort of sense. And, and I like the idea because it felt very, um, uh, you know, timely of sort of algorithms getting out of control. And, um, you know, I think interestingly to me, you know, with the Cold War, I remember my mom like 
jokingly being like the Olympics aren't fun because we don't have we can't like essentially fight a proxy war with Russia now that the Soviet Union's fallen. I mean, we still kind of do, but you know, you had this big bad, you know, that everybody could point to, um, and over there they well, were. We right. have that today. It's just not. It's not. But it's really more. Right. But it's more. But it's more diffuse, right? You know, it's not a like. It was. Well, but, fair enough. <laughs> but like a T C. Yeah, T C. <laughs> It's TC's favorite favorite uh, government. Let's just say. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Um, uh, the Russians, the Russians are just tremendously skilled at uh, Maskarovka, right? Deception and mm-hmm. um, using very like limited means to affect very large outcomes. Um, but at the end of the day, their their economy is you know their GDP is the size of Italy, mm-hmm. so they play very well with a very small hand. Yeah. Um, but you know, they did, they weren't behind the OPM breach, right? Like, like I, I have like the government pays for my, um, you know, uh, identity protection because the, you know, the, the Chinese broke into it and, you know, have like, anyway, it's a, there, there is a clear peer competitor today and it's not the Russians. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Can't argue with that. Uh, but I guess what I was getting at too is, well, I guess it's still monolithic, but I don't know. But never mind. We'll leave however, it. However, <laughs> however, Erica's point about like the Russia gate and stuff like that, um, that was one of the reasons I pitched this because I, I figured eh, it would take about, you know, two to three years to get everything, you know, done and, and, and in publication mode so that it would come out right before the election. That was by at least that was by my design. Mm-hmm. Um, the Halloween bit, that's just kind of gravy. It comes out in October and that just kind of works. But um you know, I, I figured it would be a, a good time to revisit some of these topics in a non, I mean, it's in a non-political way. It's just, I think, a fascinating yeah. um, look at the way things could have been. Um, I guess what I, I guess what I was getting at is it's, it, you do see things through these little, um, you know, again, algorithms and social media being shared in this game. And that, that's what I was trying to get at. And I think that the story felt very timely because of that. Um, There's one other thing. Oh, I love the line um, when we talk about, well, since you've said how it happens, you know, the, the airman who pushes the button, actually pushes the button that sends the nuclear uh, war head off, you know, bombs ourselves. Is she says, I was only following instructions, which of course, famously, a, you know, Nazi cop out. But here she's not following instructions from like higher ups in the military. She's following instructions of a game. And I thought that was a, a brilliant little twist on that. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the game is meant to, you know, obviously you can't see it, but it's meant to be a very cute game, very, you know, Japanese kawaii kind of thing. And so when she's following the instructions, like they're very malevolent instructions, you're pressing a destruct key. But, you know, because of the way the game is designed, it's designed to be cute, it's designed to be like, oh, it's a friendly little game. Um, you don't, she's not even thinking that she's pressing the button that could, you know, sure, she thinks it's, you know, disabled, but nobody in their right mind would think to press that. And I guess my point is that, you know, social media and gaming and things can make you do awful things and you have no idea what's going on because of the algorithms and because of just the complexity of it. And um, so yeah, it was definitely meant to be like, that's, that's also why I started out this story with people being happy about the game, because again, you wouldn't think that something that looks so, uh, you know, so innocent would be uh, this horrible, you know, 
weapon of like a superior alien intelligence. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, we talked about aliens. This is where I'll put like my little tinfoil hat on is like, I'm very scared. Here I've been posting a podcast, but a lot of the internet freaks me out, put it that way. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, let's talk about uh, John's story, Second Front. Um, so this is sort of a uh, secret moon base sort of story. Um, and I, I guess just give us, if you would, just give us the setup of kind of the position that the Soviets and the Americans are in. Uh, when sure. Yeah, this is um, um, the mid 80s. There's um, the, the war, uh, the Cold War went hot in late 1983, uh, which was something actually that almost happened. I, I uh, while writing another story, had done some research and had discovered that in late 83, there'd been uh, the US and our NATO allies had uh, launched this massive war game, Operation Able Archer, which was uh, supposed to anticipate a Soviet attack and, you know, a, a conventional and nuclear. And the Soviets thought that this was a pretext for us to attack. Um, and so once it was, it's one of those things that you find about much later on, you know, almost brought us to, to actual an actual exchange of, of some kind. So um, in, in the world of my story, that's happened, um, a limited nuclear exchange that's, that's you know, devastated large parts of, of the globe. Um, and it's, it's the, there are still conflicts being fought at local levels, but, you know, the planet's in, in pretty horrible shape. And uh, fortunately, there's a secret moon base. Um, actually, there's two secret moon bases. There's one the Americans have, and there's, and there's one the Soviets have, Armstrong and Gagarin. And um, people are being, are being shipped up there by, uh, by both sides. Supplies are being brought up there. No one's 100% sure why they're up there. Um, there were rumors that maybe this is, is the sort of um, as a stage to, to launch um, a colonization mission to Mars, but you know, maybe not. Um, and into this, into this mix where the, the Soviet base is about three times the size of the, of the American base. Um, but in, into this mix come these, um, they're, they're Lovecraftian monsters, the Migo, although nobody ever knows that they're, they're called that in the, in the story. Um, and at first they, they just call them the lobsters because that's what they look like. If you know, a lobster that's like the size of a horse. Um, and, um, and obviously it's some type of alien life form. It's, it's coming into the moon from somewhere much further out in the solar system um, for reasons that nobody is 100% sure of, although the, the point of view character thinks that it's no coincidence that, that they've shown up right as the US and the USSR have, as, as she puts it, basically committed mutual suicide. And so there's a question about, about what their, um, are they hostile or are they not hostile? Um, are they dangerous but not intelligent? Um, and, and the story kind of goes on from there. Yeah, one thing, you know, uh, listening to you talk about it, it was something that struck me as I was reading it that I really liked was that there's a lot of things that the characters don't know. And so we as readers don't know. And I thought you played with that really well of like, what are the, what are they, why are they here? There's a rumor for this is why is there a moon base? How did, and um, I just think that's an interesting technique as a writer to, to be able to play with that ambiguity. And of course it makes it in a way a lot, uh, it makes it feel real and it also makes it feel kind of more terrifying. You know, you don't, 
know what's tapping on the window or what have you. Um, the other thing I really liked is sort of a uh, couple ideas in here I'll, I can quote is, um, it says, given the devastation the nukes have visited already, it was horrifying to think if anyone would deploy one now. On the other hand, it wasn't as if one more was going to make things substantially worse. Uh, that was a, uh, an interesting idea. And then um, the, the big one to me was, um, they're talking because the, the lobsters are primarily early on attacking the Soviets. And the attitude seems to be like, well, good, we didn't align the Soviets anyways. And one of the characters says, um, this is a P I'll, I'll guess I'll censor my cursing. I don't really know who watches this podcast <laughs> age range wise. We don't don't have, worry. My, my mom is not watching. So we it's don't okay. have that granular level of, uh, you know, Nielsen rating, you know, market research, but um, it says the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Bullshit. You don't know what the enemy of your enemy is. Um, I just wondered if you could talk about that because it, it sort of reminds me a lot of things in history that, who you thought was your friend because they were the enemy of your enemy. It doesn't always turn out so well for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, opportunism leads us to, to make certain calls in the, in the heat of the moment that when, you know, in, when we were able to view them in retrospect and in, in the rear view mirror, uh, we think, Oh my God, how could you possibly have thought that something that was not even human was going to, to help you out? You know, like, like, um, but, um, what politics makes strange bedfellows, I guess. I guess moon base fighting on the moon <laughs> makes for strange, strange uh, bedfellows, I guess. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, um, I, I kind of like that idea that, um, you know, you, you might think in the short term, hey, these things are, are some kind of weird space alien. We don't even know what they're doing, but at least they're attacking the Soviets. Um, and not thinking, man, there's not that many of us left up here on the moon, maybe, you know, maybe we should try to reach out, <laughs> which is never going to happen. I mean, I think thinking about the geopolitics of the time, I suspect that the, the um, you know the cosmonauts would have rejected that as as a trap or or something like that. But um, but yeah, it it doesn't um, it it ultimately doesn't end well uh, in some ways for anybody. Now, is this um, part of? something larger or have you worked in this world before if it had i mean it's complete in and of itself but it sort of made me feel like maybe there was more uh that you've done or are there any plans to and i guess that actually could go to our other contributors as well if you want to if this was part of a larger thing or if you think you might dip back into this world at any point it it was not um uh, it was inspired in part um by an anthology um, many years ago that I was not invited to. And, you know, no no big deal. But one of my friends had put together an anthology of stories about power armor, um, you know, Gundam suits or Iron Man or, or whatever. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. And I had this idea for a, for a story about about that that sort of situation or set in that sort of situation. And and um, and so when this came along, when, when, when the opportunity to write this story came along, I, I reached for that idea and kind of tweaked it a bit to, to fit into the, the context of, um, uh, of the anthology. Well, even, um, like, even the way that, you know, John described kind of just the, the, even the atmosphere of the piece was r really creepy, right? Where they're looking on earth and it's just swirling black clouds and um, 
but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It's it, it's just it, it's really it's extremely evocative, um, and it, it and and I agree. Like it, it definitely stands on its own, and it you know there definitely could be, could be more. But uh, however, if if a Hollywood producer would like to contact <laughs> me about a possible series of films or TV shows, I, I'm completely willing to sell out. <laughs> um, the. Um, well, that kind of, I think, covers the story. You know, it's it's always hard with short stories because you don't want to talk about them too much because then you give them away. I think we've hit the some of the enough to whet everyone's appetite. Hopefully, with these stories, um, Sean, I wanted to uh, talk back with you about maybe if you wanted to mention some of the other uh, contributors or stories um, that you wanted to highlight. Oh, there's just so many great people in here, um, and folks can go to bang.com or Amazon or wherever they want to go and look up the table of contents and, and uh, click that buy button. You know. But um, just if you wanted to talk about some of the other things uh, in the anthology before we, before we wrap up. Yeah, I would start with um, David Drake's story, which was, um, you know, he's one of the reasons I was able to get him for the anthology is I said, look, I'm a veteran like you are from the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. And here's the idea. And I think for him, it was a very, um, the story was very personal because it, it really drew on his experience in Vietnam and Cambodia. Um, but what it, what it effectively looks at is, um, you know, in, 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 in a cold war between the U S and the Soviet union, the Soviets were, um, starting to use or starting to summon inhuman entities. Um, and then, using them, you know, them to infiltrate the U.S. military. And, you know, the whole story is, is, you know, about how that happened. They're, they're trying to take out a, sh a shaman in, you know, deep in, in a hump, you know, they're, they're on a hump going through Cambodia. And, you know, during the course of that, you know, something happens. So there's a little bit of, you know, that bit of, you know, coming home from war, being reunited with family, um, you know, can you trust that person when they come back. And I'll just leave that one there. Um, Martin Shoemaker has, has a story that looks at, you know, it's more on the um, kind of Everett, um, you know, many worlds theory. And it, it, it bases off the, you know, you're all familiar with Schrodinger's cat, right? It's both alive and dead before the, before the quantum function collapses. So, and this is actually, this ties into even remote viewing and things like that. But um, if, if you look at modern quantum mechanics and you're, um, you know, and, and this, this is down at the subatomic level, like every, every um, uh, you know, every quark has a spin. It can spin this, you know, it can spin left, spin right, spin up, spin down, et cetera. But for every state, there's a, there's a possibility. There's a, there's a wave function it's only until something happens that that possibility is locked, but there are other universes, right? Where it's spun left and there's a whole, uh, you know, set of possibilities that, that branch off of that. So in his story, um, there's, you know, a person, a person in, who's, who is looking at the math and the statistics and the probability of nuclear war is so high that the fact that they haven't had one is a confounding element, right? It just doesn't fit the math. So there's someone out there kind of, you know, tweaking reality. And so it's just, it's kind of based on that sort of um, conceit. Uh, 
another story, let's see, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a great story by Brian Trent, um, which um, looks at, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's similar in this multiverse state, but there's only like a one parallel dimension. And the Soviets figure out how to get into that parallel dimension, and then they can wink in and out you know, to the corresponding place on Earth um, in our dimension. And they use it to get a rapid advantage, um, rapid conventional advantage to take most of Western Europe, um, minus a small sliver, um, you know, uh, valiantly defended by the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in full the gap. I just kind of asked them to throw that one in because, you know, the, my regiment defended the full the gap, which is the main route of advance that the Soviets were expected to go through. Um, but, you know, he has a, he essentially in, in invents a new special forces um, that focuses on this inter interdimensional travel. And it's a really great um, examination of that. And the name, it's, it's, it's not, I think it's Arali, right? The, the alternative dimension is called Arali, which is the ancient Sumerian um, underworld. And it's, you know, different, right? It's, it doesn't really, it doesn't really have people there. It's, you know, got kind of cop, like copper in the air. Like it's just a very different place. But um, I think it's the second story in the mythology, extremely imaginative, um, very interesting. And then there's, you know, a very Lovecraftian ending in the sense that it hints at something greater. Um, you know, other, other stories, and I mentioned the, the one about, you know, Sarah Hoyt's story, which is a riff on remote viewing and, and, and fighting entities, um, you know, in, in uh, uh, controlled by the, you know, the Russians and beyond. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a story by Vila um, Marilainen, um, who's a Finnish author, um, that, you know, kind of takes the idea of the Sholomans, which is a, um, you know, it's like a school of uh, witchcraft in Romania, uh, you know, that, that, and then it kind of takes that into a uh, Lovecraftian direction, where you go and, you know, there's just, there's a lot of good stuff that's in there. Um, uh, Marina uh, Lostetter and Dr. Lostetter, um, her husband, um, do kind of, you know, one of the naval stories. It's based on the USS Halibut which was a, you know, spy submarine. And, you know, in, in the course of that, when they're trying to, you know, what that spy submarine would do is they would tap, um, f you know, uh, you know uh, international uh, communications cabling systems um, to, to, to listen in on Soviet communications. And it was a real submarine, um, it really existed, but, you know, they encounter something in the deep that, uh, you know, they weren't expecting to encounter. So that's just a, you know, very broad, preview of some of the stories that you'll see well thank you so much uh as i said for putting it together it was a great anthology enjoyed uh talking about it and uh before we go i want to give everybody a chance to plug whatever they would like to plug uh if you've got a book coming out or stories or um i'd rather you didn't try to sell us like amway or mary Kay or <laughs> multi-level marketing but i guess if you want to plug that tupperware or whatever uh, well, Erica's got a game she wants to introduce you to. You might want to look at that. <laughs> um, I guess, I don't, Erica, you want to go first? You're on. Um, but I don't have a, co a copy of the cover um, because I don't have any of my, um, you know, uh, author copies yet, but I have a novella coming out uh, on um, uh, November 3rd, Election Day, um, called Busted Synapses. And like I said, it's a um, rural cyberpunk. So it's kind of set in a world where the 
cities control everything and they're very, um, and they've kind of pushed all of the human beings out into, you know, the wastelands out, outside. And uh, so it's a kind of a take on um, kind of like now and um, uh, people are addicted to this drug that um, can also cause them to travel between worlds. Uh, there's uh, one of the main characters is a new person, kind of like an android who are being manufactured in order to um, kind of replace human beings. The goal eventually is to replace humanity. Um, this is only the first book in what I hope is going to be a series. It is so it is standalone, like you can read it alone, but it, I hope to be the first part in a series. And um, so um, November 3rd uh, from Broken Eye Books. Okay, so Here now. go vote and then go swing by the bookstore and pick up Erica's new book, uh, new novella. Uh, TC, what about, I know we've got uh, Tiger Burn, Tiger Bright coming out uh, from Bain, but I'll let you talk about it. Uh, yeah, Tiger it. Bright is, um, is coming out in February of 2021, I believe, and it's available for pre-order. There's a spaceship on the cover, which I know is important when we're talking about science fiction. So it's proper, proper science fiction. And uh, this is a continuation, um, second book in the series that started, as you mentioned, with uh, Tiger Burning. And it, it kind of takes the, the, the main character is the daughter of the main character in the first book. So it's almost like a generational series of, uh, of books. And she has to travel into deep space to uh, the home world of uh, one of mankind's um, uh, kind of, uh, well, of course, it's their most, most uh, dangerous adversary they've ever faced. It's the only one they've ever faced. And so she has to go on this mission to to uh to land on the home world and kind of bring back some of their technology so february 2021 it's available available for pre-order i know it's on amazon now i don't know about barnes and noble i'm assuming it's there too could be yeah and as you said it's a it's a sequel to um tiger tiger burning, burning. there we go <laughs> sorry no, that's uh, all right that is out now i believe i know it's out in paperback i think it might be a mass market paperback i'd have to look yeah you you can get trade that came out i think uh last year or the year before and now mass market just came out a couple okay. of months ago yeah so you and of course both. ebooks um and you can buy them wherever you buy books or ebooks or go to bain.com and uh, we've got the ebooks there drm free plug plug uh john what about you what have you got coming up uh well as, as sean graciously pointed out i have a, a new collection children of the fang uh which has monsters on the cover as a good horror collection should um and also um i had a story out in this uh weird weird horror magazine from undertow press which has a, just a fantastic halloweeny kind of cover and, and uh um, my my story is a short one, but there are, there's tons of great stuff in it, and uh, I'm just pleased because it looks so cool. Uh, all right, and Sean, what about you? You have anything uh, on the docket, either as a writer or an editor? Because I know you wear both hats. Yeah, so this is obviously you know, the whole podcast is is based on the the most immediate most immediate thing. Um, there are a few projects that um, that I'm working on there. There, and I don't want to say too much about it, but there's another anthology that is coming out um, from Bain that looks at the future of AI and robotics um, you, from a military perspective. I think uh, TC is also working on a, you know, we both are working on stories to, you know, to ho hopefully be in that um, from a, you know, from a military perspective and from a intelligence perspective on TC side. Um, there's, you know, a number of projects that I'm, that I'm working on. Um, one is uh, uh, the, the story I had in Vesterian. It's it's not it's not necessarily going to be um, 
necessarily the same world, but the same um, vibe. So I'm really starting to get into this corporate horror kind of, there's, there's not a lot because Thomas Ligotti kind of, uh, for the most part, cornered the market. I'm sure John probably knows infinitely more about this than, than, than I do, but I think there's, there's some room to really explore and, and uh, work that. So I'm going to work on a, um, you know, just starting a novel in that genre. I have a novel that, um, you know, I sent to my agent. He's, you know, taking a look at a earlier draft that is an occult detective novel called The Flatlands, which is, um, you know, based in Oakland and kind of um, Northern California. So we'll see how that, that goes. But that's kind of, and I have, you know, a few short stories here and there coming out soon, but that's about it. All right. Well, we'll look forward to, uh, to that and um, to everyone else, what you said. Uh, we've got coming out here from everyone. And uh, I just want to say thank you, everybody. This went really well. Uh, really enjoyed hearing some of the behind the scenes, if you will, about these stories. Um, so everybody, uh, the book Weird World War Three uh, is out now or by the time, it's not out now when I'm saying this, but it will be out by the time you're watching it. Uh, so uh, run, don't walk, or just get online and buy it. Uh, ebook and trade paperback. Uh, Sean, Erica, John, TC, thank you so much for being on the Bain Free Radio Hour today. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you. you for inviting us. Much appreciated. And now another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization, but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now, the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now, Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. George Benton Tower, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. And you don't even want to know what this is going to look like when the exchange opens tomorrow morning. Omasupe Quartermain glared around the conference room at her fellows. Trifect is not one of the big players, not like Technodyne or Zumwalt or even DeSoto Industries. But when the market finds out what that bastard did, we're going to see the mother of all runs, another mother of all runs. God knows we've seen enough of them since this crap started, she ended bitterly. Inakenti Kolokoltsov used his coffee mug to hide a grimace. The strong hot brew was especially welcome at 4 a.m. on a tempestuous night when he ought to have been in bed hours ago. The storms rolling in off Lake Michigan lashed George Benton Tower's flanks with 75-kilometer-per-hour winds and blinding sheets of rain. Thunder rumbled almost continuously, and lightning flickered across the tower's crown like an angry halo, striking its towering lightning rods again and again as it sought the absorbent earth. It was, he thought, all too appropriate a metaphor for what was happening to the entire Solarian League, and despite the hundreds of cubic meters of ceramicrete isolating this quiet conference room from the storm's fury, the tension about him crackled with its own angry electricity. 
Quartermain seldom waxed quite so strident, especially this early in the damned morning, or this late at night, depending upon how one wanted to look at it. On the other hand, she'd never been what one might call a fan of Manticore at the best of times, and the news from the Mobius system had hit a nerve. Not just with her either, he thought, eyes shifting to Agata Vodoslavsky. Omosupe's right about that, the permanent senior undersecretary of the Treasury said, as if his eyes had summoned her agreement. We're not going to get hit as hard by the market at Treasury as she is over at Commerce, but that's mostly because interest rates have already tanked. Her expression was at least as bitter as Quartermain's. It's a hell of a note when the upside is that the situation's already so shot to hell that even something like this can't make it worse. Except, unfortunately, that it can and will. Mobius wasn't that huge a chunk of our cash flow from the protectorates, not by itself. But if we don't get some kind of handle on this, we're going to look like an elephant gnawed to death by ants. Kolokolsov winced internally at the simile, but he couldn't deny its aptness. What I want to know, Malachi Abruzzi said, turning icy eyes upon his normal ally, Nathan McCartney, is why we didn't hear about any of this before this friggin' Tarakov blew the piss out of Yusel's gendarmes. Not to mention massacring the entire legitimate system government while he was at it. That is an apropos question, Kolokolsov agreed, lowering his coffee mug and turning toward the permanent senior undersecretary of the interior. He tapped the memo on the table smart top in front of him. According to this, you've been getting reports about Manti provocateurs in the fringe for months now, Nathan. Without any confirmation, McCartney pointed out in response. For God's sake, Anakinti, there are 17 trillion conspiracy theories running around in our so-called intelligence community. Half of them are from people trying to cover their own arses, and half the rest are from people so scared they see Manti's under their own beds, much less making trouble in the fringe. If I brought every one of them to you before we were able to confirm or disprove it, that's all the hell we'd be talking about. He glared back at the other mandarins, his body language defensive. But Kolokolsov had to acknowledge his argument had at least some validity. Maybe not enough to excuse the way this had blindsided them, but some. I'm not sure that's a sufficient explanation, he said out loud, his tone cool. At the same time... None of us have covered ourselves with proactive glory since this all started. So instead of trying to fix blame for why we didn't see it coming, what do we know about it now? I think, his smile was frosty, we need to at least know how many arteries have been slashed before we start trying to control the bleeding. As far as what actually happened in Mobius is concerned, I think we've got the essentials, McCartney said after a moment. Everything we have so far comes from Captain Weaver's report. So I'm sure there's still a lot to fill in, but I don't expect what she's already told us to change very much. And we should trust your judgment about that, after you never even mentioned the possibility something like this might happen? Kolokolsov thought sardonically. I know I just said we've all made mistakes, Nathan, but really. And Captain Weaver said exactly what, Nathan? Vodoslavsky asked. Actually, I think Omosupe may have a better fix on that than my people do, yet, anyway. McCartney shrugged. I've got more background information, more possible background information, to help set it into context. But Weaver went to commerce before she got around to us. Kolokolsov didn't quite frown as he heard the slight but unmistakable edge in McCartney's voice. 
but he felt a vast weariness that owed very little to the lateness of the hour. The ship was foundering under them, and they were still trying to score points about who'd left which porthole open. In fairness, McCartney did have a point in this case, however. Captain Josephine Weaver commanded the Colocanos Line's freighter Rudolfo Calicanos. So far as any of them knew, Rudolfo Colocanos was the only League merchant vessel to have escaped from Mobius, and Weaver had headed directly for Old Terra. According to her, Ivar's Terakov, and oh, how all the Mandarins had come to hate that name, hadn't even tried to prevent Rudolfo Calicanos' departure, however so it seemed likely other Solarian and neutral dispatch boats and freighters would soon be spreading the news elsewhere. It was unfortunate, but scarcely surprising, that Weaver had chosen to report what had happened to her employer before she got around to mentioning it to the federal government. It was equally unsurprising that someone at Kalokinos had promptly leaked the news to the public. Volkart Kalokinos's personal hatred for everything remotely connected to the Star Empire of Manticore had been legendary even before New Tuscany. And the incredible hit the shipping-based Kalokinos empire had taken since the Mantis started seizing wormholes hadn't made him any happier. Not surprisingly, probably, since current estimates said Kalokinos shipping had lost over 80% of its value. So it wasn't surprising the news had leaked so rapidly, or that the gendarmerie casualty count Weaver had reported, which admittedly had been bad enough on its own, had been inflated by two or three hundred percent. Few people had been awake to react here in old Chicago when the story broke, but two-thirds of the planet were up and about when the leak hit the public boards. The instant response had been furious anger, and that fury was certain to increase as the news sank fully home. At the moment, Malachi Abruzzi's people were playing catch-up, trying to get in front and shape the narrative to make sure that growing fury was directed somewhere besides at the people in this room. But they had their work cut out for them. More to McCartney's immediate point, however, Quartermain's position in the Department of Commerce meant she tended to hear things from the League's transstellars before anyone else. In this case, the fact that she'd been an executive with Kalakino shipping for 20 T years before becoming a bureaucrat only gave her even better connections. From her expression, she was less than pleased to have him underscore that point. As you say, Nathan, we have a lot of pieces to fill in. Her tone was as chill as her expression. What we actually know, or think we know at any rate, is that President Lombroso asked Commissioner Verrocchio for support after a violent insurrection broke out on Mobius. According to Weaver, it started in Landon, but spread quickly. In response to Lombroso's request, Verrocchio sent Brigadier Usel and a couple of intervention battalions, along with enough light naval support to control Mobius's orbital space. Usel landed her gendarmes to secure the capital and called in orbital strikes on half a dozen towns. Her lips twisted in distaste. Weaver says that effectively broke the rebellion's back, although the hardcore rebels refused to concede defeat. So Yusel and her people assisted the Mobian planetary authorities in rounding up the diehards. She'd almost completed that part of the operation when Terakov turned up. He took out the Navy units. Weaver's not sure if they were destroyed or simply surrendered, although she thinks they most likely did, given the odds against them, and entered Mobius orbit himself. He contacted Yusel and demanded that she cease operations immediately and surrender her people. She refused. 
at which point he devastated a couple of square blocks of downtown Landon with a KEW strike on Usil's HQ. Weaver says he killed the entire remaining planetary government in the same strike. Somebody named Breitbach wound up running the show Planetside. Weaver says he was supposedly the rebellion's leader, and Usil had him in custody but didn't realize who he was. Quartermain shrugged. I don't know if that's true or if he's just a manty mouthpiece, but that's all we do know at this point. Kolokoltsov nodded. That hadn't added a lot to what he already knew, but it certainly defined the parameters of their problem. The political and diplomatic parameters, anyway. He was unhappily certain Quartermain and Vodoslavsky would be able to provide far more depressing detail about the economic parameters when they got around to that side of the problem. But apparently Quartermain had provided new information for at least one of the mandarins. None of the newsies have mentioned anything about Yusel's authorizing any kinetic strikes, Vodoslavsky said sharply. Is Viva certain about that? As certain as she is about any of it. Quartermain shrugged again. We're dealing with a single report, Agata. With no way to cross-check, I can't guarantee any of it. If the gendarmes started using KEWs before Terakov ever turned up, that's not going to play well with the public, Vodoslavsky worried. Which is probably the reason our good friends over at Kalakinos haven't mentioned it to anyone, yet, Kolokotsov said. Quartermain gave him a moderately dirty look, but said nothing. Can we keep it from coming out? Abruzzi asked. That's really more your bailiwick than anyone else's, Kolokoltsov observed, earning himself an annoyed look from the information undersecretary as well. I don't know, Malachi, Quartermain said. In the short term, probably. As Inakent has just pointed out, whoever, she emphasized the pronoun, leaked this, didn't mention that aspect of it. So presumably, they don't have any interest in leaking it later on. Unfortunately, the Mandis aren't that reticent. Terakov already posted his entire comm conversation with Yusil on the Mobius Systems info net. Weaver brought a copy of it with her. I viewed it. She shook her head, eyes bleak. If the woman in the street believes it's accurate, not doctored or edited, it's going to hurt us. Yusil comes off like a friggin' lunatic, and they've got her threatening to execute prisoners in mass lots if Terakov doesn't back off. Kolokoltsov winced. That bit he hadn't heard yet. Doesn't mean a thing, Abruzzi said. The others looked at him, and he waved one hand in a dismissive gesture. It doesn't, he insisted. My people at information could whip up that same conversation in 15 minutes from a standing start. Hell, we've done it. So the fact that the Mantis are so obliging about sharing it actually offers us a way to attack it. We dig up Yusil's records, demonstrate she's always been firm about completing any mission, but always scrupulously observed the relevant laws and regulations while she did it. He smiled. Trust me, whatever her records are really like, I can make her look like a Girl Scout. Then we point out how easy it would be to manufacture something like that. We don't usually want to draw attention to that, since it gives malcontents the opportunity to suggest we routinely do it. But in this case, we might want to go ahead and produce a clip of our own, showing you still giving in the instant Tarakov demands her surrender. Then we put that up on the boards, side by side with her threat to start shooting people 
and admit her surrender was created out of whole cloth. Admitting that won't prevent it from having a certain subliminal impact, and it will conclusively demonstrate how easy it would have been for the Mantis to do the opposite. That might, might help defuse that threat, Kolokoltsov said skeptically. But what about the kinetic strikes? What happens when independent confirmation of those hits the boards? And it will hit them, he thought glumly. The Mantis have been too damned good about hauling neutral newsies, even Solarian newsies, around with them. Be a bit hard to sweep their imagery of the craters under the rug, Malachi. We don't deny they happened, McCartney said before Brutzi could respond. You're not serious, Vodoslavsky protested, and Kolokoltsov understood exactly why. Every Solarian citizen knew the SLN prevented mass casualty strikes. That was why there was an Eridani edict in the first place. The fact that there'd been quite a few kinetic strikes by the SLN over the centuries was one of those unpleasant little truths which had somehow failed to make it into the same everyone-knows territory as the Navy's reputation as the guardian of truth and justice in a darkling galaxy. Of course I'm serious, McCartney said impatiently. Agatha, I understand the possible downsides, but we can't pretend there weren't any KEWs, and not even Malachi's people could convincingly explain why the Mantis would be bombarding Morbian towns and cities outside the capital. That means they had to come from our ships, but, he raised his right hand, index finger extended, they weren't Yusel's idea. They were called in at the urgent request of the legitimate system government and directed at centers of dug-in resistance, urban areas which had been evacuated of all civilians, except those the rebels physically prevented from leaving to use as human shields, where the Morbian military and the gendarmes would have suffered enormous casualties if they'd gone in on the ground. He shrugged. I admit it was regrettable, and no doubt a lot of innocent civilians were killed. But that was as a consequence of the Lombroso government's decision, and even more, of the rebels' decision to use those innocent civilians as cover. Brigadier Yusel had been sent to assist the legitimate authorities, and it's well established that domestic police actions by legal governments don't rise to the level of an Eridani edict violation unless casualties are truly massive. In this case, they probably didn't exceed a quarter million, a half million at the most. He shrugged again. As I say, regrettable, but not our responsibility or our decision and I expect Malachi's people can do a pretty fair job of arguing that the Mantis and their Mobian puppets are vastly inflating the fatalities anyway. Kolokoltsov puffed his cheeks, then took another sip of coffee. It didn't help. The bad taste remained as he contemplated McCartney's glib proposal. We can probably make that work, for a while at least, Abruzzi said after a moment. We've already been working on strategies headed in that direction to counter Manti claims once Buccaneer hits its stride. Not the same, of course, because we're not talking about local government's assistance requests in Buccaneer's case, and it's aimed at infrastructure, not mass casualties. But I've got plenty of talking heads on record explaining that Buccaneer doesn't violate the edict for several reasons, including the argument that it's a legitimate exercise of the federal police power against treasonous Solarian citizens. It's easier to justify the destruction of infrastructure in hostile non-league star systems, but since we're denying the legality of secession, 
we should be covered even someplace like Hypatia. Like I say, none of that speaks directly to Nathan's suggestion, but it's all groundwork we've already put in place. Eventually, the Mantis version will gain traction in the opposition faxes, but they're still pretty marginalized. And frankly, the general public has the attention span of a gnat. He raised both hands, shoulder high and palms uppermost. By the time the other side's version gets disseminated, most Solarians will already have internalized our version. The other side's version, Kolokoltsov thought. Even here, he's not willing to call it the truth. Whoever said truth is the first casualty of war damned well knew what he was talking about. Which didn't mean Abruzzi didn't have a point. And as long as the Navy kept collateral casualties to a minimum, and the Mantis didn't force the task force commanders to resort to Parthian. Whether or not we can mitigate that aspect, Mobius is still an economic and public relations nightmare, he pointed out. Economically, yes, Abruzzi replied. But in terms of public relations? He shook his head, and to call a cult of surprise, his eyes glittered with something that looked very much like genuine enthusiasm. Oh no, Inakenti. This time, the fuckers have stepped right into it. They've given us the biggest club we've had since all this started. Excuse me? Quartermain sounded as surprised as Kolokoltsov felt, and Abruzzi actually chuckled. It was not a warm and mirthful sound. We've been telling everybody this is all about the Mantis' interstellar ambitions, right? He looked around the conference room, then snorted. Well, what else do you call a galaxy-wide operation to foment rebellion, violent rebellion, the kind that gets millions of people killed throughout the fringe in order to generate pretexts for military intervention to set up pro-manti puppet regimes? I'm sure someone on their side is going to claim this is a purely defensive reaction on their part, prompted by our senseless aggression. But there's no way in hell something like Mobius happened overnight. This had to have been planned in detail especially given the reports Nathan's finally gotten around to sharing with us. He joined the others in momentarily glaring at McCartney, then shrugged. What we've got, what we can dust off and send to the boards at the most strategic moment, is evidence, pretty strong evidence, that we can make even stronger, depending on how we go about presenting it, that the Mantis started organizing this T years ago, that it's a long-term strategy, when they put in place before Raging Justice, before Spindle, before New Tuscany, before Monica, hell, before any open incident. He smiled coldly. Believe me, by the time my people are done massaging this, there won't be any more questions about the Mantis' real aims. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Plus, praise, thanks, and gratitude to Sean Patrick Hazlitt, Erica L. Satifka, John Langan, and T.C. McCarthy, editor and authors of Weird World War III. And thanks to Tony Daniel for letting me sit in the captain's seat while he beamed down on an away mission. Until next time, I'm David Afshirod, coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.